everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, Naomi, and, and my name is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are thrilled to be joined by a repeat guest, Robert Pondicio. He is also a colleague of ours at AEI, and he has written uh, two really interesting pieces about um, education and education reform and education and COVID uh, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, and we wanted to talk to him about them. Um, usually, of course, this podcast is really about, you know, kind of systems that are out there uh, to supposedly help children and uh, sometimes end up hurting them. Um, but we understand, of course, that education uh, education is affected by larger political forces too. And so one of the things that uh, Robert's been really kind of following closely is the politics of education reform um, and, uh, you know, whether it's sustainable over time and who's on which side. Um, so Robert, kind of, you know, can you lay out for us what the landscape looks like now um, in education reform now that uh, we're two years into this pandemic? Right. Tell us who's on which team. <laughs> and also this idea that in ed education reform, it used to be that we could actually park our differences. We put our politics aside. Well, you know, we could disagree about environment. We could disagree about poverty, crime. But we all agreed that school choice mattered. But now things seem to be shifting. Yeah, I, I, I like to say that um, education is not above the fray. It is the fray. And, and no more so than, than at present, where, where you know, nothing escapes the, the, the voracious maw of, of partisan politics. So, I mean, I don't want to sound naive here and suggest that we should be able to get back to that kind of that moment that you're alluding to, Ian, that kind of, you know, that, that, that moment of bipartisanship that I think um, that we're all old enough to remember from 20 odd years ago when, you know, education reform felt like this, you know, grand moral crusade and, and right and left coalesced around the idea, a suite of ideas, right? Charter schools, testing, accountability, closing the achievement gap. I mean, you saw organizations, you know, spring up like, you know, Teach for America that would get this kind of, you know, gauzy um, coverage, you know, in national media, um, KIPP, et cetera. That, that suddenly just seems so, so long ago, doesn't it? And, and from, from a very, very different era. Um, but the piece that, that Naomi nicely alluded to uh, that I wrote this week for Real Clear Policy kind of dissects uh, the, 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 the current state of play in, in private school choice, as it were. And, and look, I don't bring a single original notion to this. There were a pair of papers that I was looking at, one by a fellow named Ian Kingsbury uh, from Johns Hopkins, uh, who, who did a nifty little bit of research that, that it's funny, in my first draft of this piece, you know, um, I rather puckishly said that there's, there's, there's a new study out in the Journal of the Obvious. Uh, it was actually published in, in, in the Journal of School Choice. I'm going to use that. <laughs> exactly. So, so much research should be published in the Journal of the Obvious. I'm going to start that before I die. Um, but it, it made the point that, like, look, people in education, reform, based on who's getting grants from the, you know, the two 800-pound gorillas of that world, from the Walton Family Foundation and the Gates Foundation, that they are not just progressive, they are screamingly progressive. You know, I mean, they're, they're, but, but they, they are left of even the typical Democrat. So we, we kind of all knew this, right? In other words, you know, it's, it's not a surprise to, to, to anybody uh, that ed reform tilts uh, massively to, to the left, especially on social issues. 
But the thing that we seem reluctant to discuss is, is how this affects the dynamic of, of the school choice uh, universe. And, and look, you know, Ian, you have been uh, an object of this, right? I mean, you've seen, you've lived this, you have been called out by people in, in the school choice um, world for being insufficiently woke. Um, proudly, I have too. proudly called out. <laughs> the old Dan Quayle line, I wear their, 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 uh, their I, I wear, wear their disdain or uh, as a badge of honor. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, you know, we, we, we've seen a bit of a fracturing. Um, I mean, on the one hand, and the, the second piece of research was from uh, Jay Green and James Paul. It was published by AEI. Um, and it, it pointed out that, look, you know, and I, I don't have these numbers in front of me, so forgive me if I'm, if I'm being imprecise here. There were something like 70 different school choice votes taken, and only three of them required a single Democratic vote for passage in, in a, I believe, about 18 red states. So, you know, the, the obvious thing here is like, look, school choice, private school choice, you know, vouchers, ESAs and whatnot, it just fits better in, in, at the present moment in, in red state politics. So why, why do we think that we even need this, this, this consensus? If, if voters in blue states and blue cities don't want this, or, or if they do, well, then it's up, up to them to kind of make their voices heard, either to their legislators or at the ballot box. But it, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever, to my way of thinking, to sit around and admire this problem. You know, right. um, uh, we, let, let's, just, let's just acknowledge that, that uh, we are in different places politically right now, um, accept that as a fixed condition and, and, uh, and move on. Yeah, but doesn't this just expose the fact that it's progressive, quote unquote, elites who are the ones who are taking on this sort of woke agenda. But when you speak sure. to like the, the parents in our school who are voting oh. with their feet, right. right, they very much are on the choice agenda and they don't necessarily want their kids to hear all day about how oppressed they are. They want schools that are telling them how to empower their kids to be successful. So I do think it's interesting that you're raising the point that maybe we don't need the bipartisan co coalition, not because it's red states, versus, but it's because the very people being served are actually still interested in the underlying agenda. And we, don't, we can almost bypass those who claim to be um, representing the interests of primarily low-income oh, families. Look, no question. Uh, you know, I think you and I are, are are kindred souls on this. But at some point, it doesn't matter what we think. You know, I mean, there there's here we go again. You know, politics. You know, education is not above the fray. It is the fray. So the education, the politics of education and reform and choice in certain parts of the country that badly need choice, they're just not going to get it until until something happens. Um, I mean, look, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not on the political left, but if I were, I'd be looking at what happened in a state like Virginia and say, how many more Virginias do we need uh, before, before this writes itself? Right? But, but it doesn't make any sense for those of us who are interested in, the, in, in what happens in schools and with kids to sit around lobbying for a, a to, to rebuild a consensus that may have outlived its usefulness. Yeah, I just want to interrupt. How, but I, maybe you could describe a little bit more of of how we lost uh, oh. 
the left on this so much. I mean, obviously, I think a lot of us who have been, you know, in the school choice movement for a long time, you know, um, there were there are lots of people on the left who who sort of realized that it was, you know, the teachers unions had their entrenched interests. Um, but, you know, they thought that fixing, you know, inequality was was more important, uh, well, that, yeah. it, that it was unfair that these kids who were in poor neighborhoods were left with terrible schools. So is it, you know, some sense that the union got to them or they've just decided that there are more important priorities that they have? Um, yeah. what, what, what sort of led that consensus to really unravel? I guess I'd like to kind of put my finger on a little bit more. Yeah, well, I mean, this is, this is purely speculative uh, and based on observations because it represents a point of view that I happen to not share. Um, but I, I think at the end of the day, I don't think I'm, I'm misreading the situation to say that um, the ed reform left has just adopted a very different theory of change than they had 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Where 20 years ago, it was exactly those things, Naomi. It was about you know, choice for choice sake. It was about accountability. It was about you know, uh, uh, defanging the, the power of the teachers unions. Uh, it was about accountability. It was about teacher quality. That was the, that kind of suite of ideas that we all kind of embraced. Um, and, and now, at the risk of oversimplifying, I think the progressive, the, the social progressive left has basically said it's racism, stupid. Um, and, and there are those of us who just don't agree with that, you know, who now let me be clear. It's not as if that other you know, suite of reforms was terribly effective. But the irony here, uh, and, and nobody knows this better than Ian, is that for a certain subset of American children, it's been wildly effective. You know, uh, it's it's uh, if you look at charter schools in places like New York City, where Ian schools are, well, you could point to the ecosystem. And I wrote a book about Success Academy and, and whatnot. You know, New York City is home to some of the best performing charter schools in the world or in the country, um, and the demand is undiminished. But at the same time, the progressive uh, uh, social justice wing, if you like, of ed reform seems kind of embarrassed by them. You know, in other words, it's not about reading scores. Um, you know, it's 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 uh, you know the the whole uh, thing that we saw with Kip last year, walking back. I mean, this is a it's, it's a silly thing, but everybody glommed onto it. You know, uh, getting rid of their their uh, be nice, work hard tagline because it you know invokes white supremacy and or or anti blackness or whatnot. I mean, you know, it, it just kind of we're, we're losing the plot. I, I think it's fair to say we're 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 forgetting what schools are for. We're forgetting what parents want in schools, and we're kind of attaching a um, a social justice agenda onto it, grafting it onto it. Um, and and look, those of us on the right are saying, look, this is this is not what we should be doing here. These schools are successful. We should be having more of them. So that, I think that's the schism. In short, is you know, one is about performance, and the other is about so, a social justice agenda. I mean, it is so interesting. I did, I did, I testified last week at the, at, at the U.S. House on, on economic disparities, and I kept making the point where if you're in, in like in, in Bronx District Eight, only two percent of kids graduate from high school ready for college, right? And I, so I made the basic point: if kids are coming out of a school system where they can't do basic math or reading without remediation, why do we expect there to be, you know, success in home ownership or? or overrepresentation in crime. And the basic point that these other witnesses were making, well, yeah, but even if they had education, the outcomes are still not um, equal. And so therefore we need to just have these massive interventions down the road. And it's just, it's just a complete uh, repudiation of the importance of a yeah. strong foundation. So I agree with you. It's just the whole yeah, solution set has just changed. 
I, I just don't think these are resolvable differences, Ian, at the end of the day. And that was kind of the upshot of my piece. I mean, I'm, I, I'm not being mischievous when I say this, um, I promise you, but it, it, if, if I'm on the ed reform progressive left right now, and my heuristic is it's racism, um, and it all must be dismantled branch. Well, you know, who else is saying that is the teachers unions and, and whatnot. So at what point does, does the, the, the progressive left wing of, of the ed reform world, but I repeat myself, just decide that they're fighting the wrong battles and they, they should be in alliance with, with uh, the, the teachers unions yep. and, and but to you know, end where I started and school choice. Well, that's going to be a red state Republican thing. Robert, yes, while this sort of ideological shift is happening at the, uh, at the sort of elite level, um, what's been happening on the ground for two years is, as you described, this perfect storm yeah. that is maybe disrupting something that's been going on for generations, which is this love affair that uh, parents have with their own local schools, right? They may think yeah. public education as a whole is, is completely messed up, but when you ask them about their own local school, <laughs> right. you know, it's all good. It's great. It's They're your great. congressman who's terrible. Mine is great. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. Your school is terrible. Mine is great. Now, this is, I'm, I'm laughing, but this is just one of the most enduring and predictable, you know, uh, habits of mind in American civil society and has been for decades. But you know, perhaps. This idea that we, yeah, well, it's changing, I think. But I mean, for, for decades, if you ask Americans, you know, poll after poll, what do you think of public, what, what grade would you give public education? The grade comes back as a D or an F what grade would you give to your child's local public school? Well, that's an A or a B. So there must I, be some- By the way, I have a theory about this. I think that okay. this is because of property taxes paying, your, your local property taxes paying for your public schools. It's this, yeah. you're feeling like, if it weren't good, like I would be throwing my <laughs> money idiot. away. And so I better not be throwing my money away. And so there's right. a- Right, cost. You would say, are you kidding me? No, of course it must be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a, it's a sunk cost. No, I, and I think you know, um, and my my choice friends, and I consider myself, you know, my cho choice, um, you know, advocacy uh, track record, I think, is in good order. I hope, but, but I mean, I always kind of, uh, risk getting the ire up of of my choice friendly friends when I say, you know. Um, look, you know, there's there's a reason that 80, and you're saying it's a love affair, Ian. I, I describe it more of a cultural habit. You know, for, for generations, we have sent our kids to local public schools because that's what we do. And there has to be a really, really good reason for us to not do it. You know, and, and it just won't do to say, well, that's because there's no good options or, or, or I mean, it's just, we, we tend to just, it's inertia, if nothing else. We just, we tend to like our local public schools. But um, I do think, and this was the point of the piece that I wrote for the 74. You know, and this is again, this is just a sense. I can't point to any you know, real data on this other than to say that it just, you know, there, there are intriguing cracks in the wall here that, that, that whether it's a cultural habit or a love affair, Americans are seem like the pandemic has, has kind of you know, just, just uh, stirred up a bit of restive energy and now they're considering other options. And then we don't know, is it because they have to, because their local schools are just you know, unavailable and unpredictable? Is it because of things like you know, mask mandates or critical race theory? Uh, unknown and unknowable, but, but I think it's, it is safe to say that that, that, that relationship, that, that generational relationship of Americans with local public schools has just never felt more up in the air than it is right now. Yeah, no, and I, I mean, I think you, 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 all, you, all of those things, and also just the fact that I think parents in the last couple of years, it's just all of those things have been made more obvious to them. 
all yeah. of the zooming that's going on into their classroom, their lack of ability to get in touch with administrators and teachers. I mean, you know, that's something that I, I, I saw Carol Markowitz tweeting about this the other day that um, for she was now, now that she lives in Florida, was allowed to go in and read to her six-year-old's classroom um, and reminding parents that this was something that you used to be able to do, that you were kind of welcome in your kid's school and that yeah. there were parent volunteers, you know, roaming the halls and talking to teachers teachers and administrators. And, you know, uh, you know, my own school district, like continues to have virtual meetings with the principal, virtual meetings with teachers. Um, and I think, you know, that that personal connection that was probably part of this love affair has been broken. Um, and, and that is probably probably part of the problem for a lot of Americans. They no longer feel that personal connection with the leadership and the teachers at the school either. Look, it's just trust. At the end of the day, it comes down to, to trust. And, and we have historically placed great faith and trust in schools and teachers because, you know, again, this is, that, that, this is where the, 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 the proximity, uh, the neighborhood issue looms large. These are, these are people I see in the grocery store. I, you know, this is, my, my, my kid had this uh, fourth grade teacher, so is my younger kid, et cetera. I mean, we, we build these bonds over time. And Naomi, what you're suggesting, and I agree with you, is that trust has been damaged. And it's been over what? Over what hasn't damaged that trust? Um, I mean, we, we don't like to think, those of us who are you know, policy people, we don't like to think of schools in terms of daycare, for example. But come on, as parents, we know that we rely on schools to be open and available. We, we plan our lives around it. Well, there's 40 weeks of instruction, five days a week. We know when the holidays are. We plan our vacations around them. We make other plans for children. When, when school is an on-again, off-again thing, when you find out on Sunday night that that is going to be closed for a week, that's just disruptive. You know, and I'm not suggesting that schools are daycare only, but there's something about that. That, that entire relationship rests on not just oh, I like my school and it's good academically, but it's reliable, it's stable, it's predictable. So you know, we're now in, in, in the third year of, of you know, either COVID disruptions or the threat of COVID disruptions. That alone is, is enough reason to, to, to call this relationship into question. Well, it also doesn't help when the uh, attorney general is essentially accusing parents of being domestic terrorists. There's right? that too. Right. You know, <laughs> that's not helpful. I mean, what, what do you think is the impact of new groups like Parents Defending Education, where literally, you know, parents are rising up and, and yeah. uh, weaponizing um, the tools that they have at their avail to try and improve their schools or stop the encroachment that they see of ideology yeah. that they don't agree with? You know, I, I, I'll actually, you know, answer that question by raising, uh, raising the stakes somewhat. You tell me, Ian, am I wrong to suggest that the average American public school teacher simply does not think of himself or herself as a government employee, as a, as a public servant, right? That's just not the culture of education, right? So it, 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 in other words, and what are these, these groups doing, whether it's Moms for Liberty or Parents Defending Education? They're basically asserting their rights as citizens, as taxpayers to say, hold on a second, what are you doing with my child in, in, in the name of the state, right? And, yeah. and, and I think a lot of folks in education are just kind of caught up short by that to say, what do you mean? You know, in other words, they're, they're just not used to thinking of themselves as state actors, but of course we are. Right, oh no, this, didn't, didn't this MSNBC reporter just record a video saying, yeah, I don't understand these, these, these parents. Oh, I don't who, work for you, right? Yeah, yeah that, no, that, she that, said, yeah. you know, these parents don't understand. It's about the collective. It's not about their individual school. It was a stunning 
statement. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, look, all of this feels like it's it's uh, in in play. Not you know, not not just the relationship to public schools, but the relationship to education in general. I mean, you know, I, look, I, and and I don't think there's this is a tale maybe without too many good guys because let's be candid. Those of us who are, you know, ed reformers, it's not like we have a lot to show for ourselves for our technocratic manipulations for the last 20 years either, you know, and now you have basically, you know, the, the, the social justice uh, um, uh, warriors, as it were, trying to impose their agendas on schools. Schools, look, to be clear, schools have always been subject to these kind of, you know, the, the, these, these wins. But at some point, again, you kind of lose the plot. What is what is school for? What what am, what am, what, am, what outcome am I expecting for for my child? So I think there's we're kind of on the brink of maybe this is I'm being optimistic here, but I hope we're on the brink of kind of a grand rethinking of all this. Like what 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 is school for in America? You know, the disagreement on that question also became quite clear during the pandemic. I mean, I, I you know I I wrote a piece maybe it was last year for Bloomberg looking at just just talking about the number of different voices on these you know massive community Zoom calls where, you know, some parents were like, you know, the most important thing to me is that my kid gets back to playing sports. You know, the most important thing to me is that you offer remote schooling so my kid never gets sick. The most important thing to me, I mean, and it was just widely divergent what people expected out of their schools. And the question is, you know, can, is it, is it really possible to reach a consensus just again on a, on a community level, or are we all just sort of saying, this is the kind of school I want to go to, and this is the kind of school I want to go to. And, and just because someone lives next door to you doesn't mean they want to go to the same kind of school. No, I think that's right. But look, I I, want to register kind of a caution, uh, a bit of a caution for our school choice advocate friends. Um, Let's please avoid uh, the, 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 the moral downside, as it were, of kind of taking advantage of a crisis. In other words, it's it just kind of off-putting to me. In other words, it, it bothers me when, when uh, and again, I'm a choice guy, but I, don't, I, I take no pleasure in seeing this loss of trust in, in public education for the reason that I alluded to earlier. This is where a majority of American children go to school and probably always will. So in other words, there's something a little bit icky, right? About taking advantage of that lack of trust to promote your ideal of, of choice. We should be able to do both. We should be able to recognize that, look, we have a vested interest as taxpayers, as parents, as Americans in, in good schools, period, full stop. Choice is an intrinsic good. It's not good just because your school is terrible. Um, so, I, you know, and, and by the same token, our, our AEI colleague Yuval Levin has written, you know, uh, very um, brilliantly about uh, you know, institutions being used as, as platforms instead of molds. Well, that's the other side's uh, Achilles heel, right? In other words, when you when you use these schools as as social platforms for your social justice agenda, well, now you're damaging trust. So you know, so both of us, both both sides of this of this debate. Are, are kind of losing the plot. And, and uh, you know, this is just, again, the, the one caution I want to sound is, is uh, you know, we, we should not be washing our hands or taking, taking joy uh, in, the, in the loss of trust in any of this. Very fair point, Robert, very fair point. All right. Well, we so appreciate you coming on for a second time. We we love having repeat guests, but you you you're so prolific and have so many interesting things to say about education and education reform that we're probably going to have you on for a third time, not very long from now. So, um, anyway, 
<laughs> um, so this has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? Uh, you can get our podcast on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you choose to get your podcasts. And with that, I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Thank you.